The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good afternoon or evening, depending on your time zone. Uh, This is Joe Schuldenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Um, Today's episode is devoted to an unusual topic. It is brought on by a series of... uh, programs on cable television here in North America that have aired uh, concerning uh, the pursuit of archaeology or the pursuit of artifacts more specifically by individuals who choose to uh, do this type of pursuit because of the lure of treasure finding and uh, the obvious uh, accumulation of money uh, by doing this type of pursuit. And these shows have generated a tremendous buzz in the professional archaeological community and uh, somewhat of a significant ramping up of interest as well in the cable channels that they broadcast through. And as a result of a controversy uh, between the professional archaeological community as, and the, uh, the general public, as well as a tremendous amount of response that has been generated within the archaeology community itself with uh, folks from various organizations circulating petitions, appealing to their parent archaeological organizations such as the Society for American Archaeology, the Archaeological Institute of America. There has been a tremendous amount of comment and controversy about these shows which tend to glorify treasure hunting and the commercialization of archaeology in a variety of different contexts. So towards that end, I have assembled a group of three individuals who are intimately familiar with public archaeology and the transmission of uh, archaeology to the public, and I would like to introduce them. I am very pleased to introduce uh, one of our first international participants, uh, Dr. Ray Carl, who is a professor of archaeology and heritage at Bangor University, Wales, in the U.K., He is originally from Vienna, Austria, and he moved to Britain over a decade ago. Uh, Dr. Carl has worked primarily in Celtic archaeology, both on the European continent and in Britain. His main research interest is archaeological practice, heritage management, and public archaeology. So he uh, provides a heritage management perspective on an international scale, which is not something that we have dealt with.
delved into at this point on the program so far. And he has also recently published a major monograph critically examining the neo-positivist foundations of Austrian archaeology and another one assessing Austrian archaeological heritage management law and practices, which has come out in 2011. Dr. John Dorschek, our second guest, is uh, the state archaeologist of Iowa since 2007 and is an adjunct assistant professor in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Iowa. Previously, he has served at the, as the Office of the State Archaeology Contracts Division's Director and as the General Program Director for 12 years. He has nearly 30 years of professional experience in cultural resource management and public archaeology and regularly teaches courses at the University of Iowa and Cornell College, including an archaeological field school. My third guest is no stranger to the program. This is, of course, Tom King, who is an archaeologist whose interests are well beyond archaeology, and he practices and talks extensively and publishes extensively about heritage and and cultural resource management. His career includes research in California and the Micronesian Islands, management of consulting groups, and helping to establish historic preservation systems in the governments of Micronesia. And Tom is best known for extensively working with indigenous groups and local communities. He has authored eight books on archaeology and heritage cultural resource management, as well as numerous journal articles, public, popular articles, and internet offerings on heritage topics. Uh, as uh, one of our more recent... Uh, episodes has aired with Tom's participation. He conducts extensive archaeological research with the Historic Group for Historic Aircraft Recovery, uh, specifically in pursuit of the 1937 disappearance of Amelia Earhart and the search for remains in that connection. I want to thank all three of you for participating in this uh, dialogue, which uh, I will preface by saying that I had contacted the producers of both programs, one is called Diggers, and that one was in, uh, produced by National Geographic Channel, and another one called American Diggers, which was uh, produced by Spike Television, which is a very popular, uh, broadly-based uh, cable station here in the United States and appeals to uh, a very broad section of the population. Um, I requested uh, potential involvement for of representatives from those programs, and I had actually anticipated doing a follow-up program to this one, possibly next week, but I found out when I contacted National Geographic that their program had aired for simply three, uh, three rep repetitions or three uh, follow-up broadcasts of of the same of of I think two episodes uh John you'll correct me on this if I'm if I'm wrong and there is no more uh reruns of that which apparently the interest seems to have peaked and waned whereas American Diggers seems to be very very popular and is going to be a series uh so first of all I want to introduce my three guests thank you so much for participating thank you glad to be here yes thanks yeah. thank and you, let me start with John, because John has actually uh, sort of opened the Pandora's box, if you will, on the interest and, and in some of the frustration that's been expressed uh, by the archaeological community on these programs. John, why don't you give us a little bit of a summary about what these uh, shows depict and your responses to them after uh, giving us a sort of a brief summary on what, they, what they're trying to depict? 
Sure, and and thanks, Joe, for having me on the show. Um, uh, my involvement with this started uh, because, as as often happens, uh, uh, on a listserv that I'm part of, uh, which is the National Association of State Archaeologists, uh, all 50 of us have a little club that uh, we communicate back and forth on a little bit, and uh, issues that are national in concern. Um, that uh, that we like to share with one another come across this list once in a while. And so an announcement came out about 10 days ago about the digger, actually about the American digger program, first the one on Spike. And in the process of, 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 of us all sort of coming up to speed on what that might entail, news of the National Geographic Channel uh, program diggers uh, came in. And so there was, as you might expect, a couple days of confusion while people were trying to sort out which was which and when was these uh, each happening. Uh, but uh, in, in the process, uh, along with the Society for American Archaeology and the Register of Professional Archaeologists and Society for Historical Archaeology and so on and so on, uh, uh, the, the community of professionals uh, in, in the organizations that they belong to started to respond and letters were starting to be written and all. And the attention uh, focused more on the Diggers program because it was uh, to air first. And it aired, I believe it was uh, a week ago, Tuesday now. And uh, so it became a focal point, as well as the fact that National Geographic seemed to be involved with it. And it wasn't clear at the time when they, uh, when they aired whether this was a National Geographic production or just something they had picked up from uh, some other source that they were showing and with the intent perhaps to uh, buy into it. And uh, from what you've just said, it sounds like perhaps they have responded to uh, some of the pressures that they received and are backing off from it. We'll have to see if that's the case. The uh, American Digger Spike TV thing is coming up later in um, uh, March, I believe, will premiere. As I understand it, they produce that one and uh, already have multiple episodes, so I think that's a, a different kettle of fish. But the, the National Geographic uh, program it was two half-hour episodes, which uh, once I viewed them, I understood it was very formulaic, and uh, the content was essentially exactly the same. They just changed physical locations from Montana to South Carolina. But um, uh, we had written, my organization, the National Association of State Archaeologists, had written to National Geographic, uh, saying, geez, the stuff that's on the Internet, the National Geographic is branded, looks like uh, a couple of guys are going to go out and rip and tear uh, with no concern, particularly for any kind of scientific method or recording of information. It wasn't even clear that they were going to be getting permission to be on private, let alone public land. So, so we expressed concern, and the response that we got was short and sweet and essentially said, uh, oh, how could you assume the worst? You haven't even seen the program yet. This was the morning that they were to be aired that evening. So my response to the group was, well, I'm going to watch it. I get cable TV. I'm going to watch it. I'll let you know what I think. And uh, so the following day then, uh, after the programs aired, uh, I put together a report, uh, which I sent to my colleagues on the uh, the state archaeologist list. And then I made that fateful decision to, to push the button to a broader audience on the American Cultural Resource Association list. And uh, it started getting out there. And apparently it was picked up and... Uh, by quite a few of the um, archaeology and store preservation lists, um, so it, it got a lot of read. <laughs> okay, what about the content? Well, the content uh, I was happy to discover that they never once said the word archaeology. Um, they uh, didn't use the word artifact. Uh, so, in that sense, they were actually distancing themselves from 
uh, the the sort of typical kinds of, of jargon that that archaeologists use and and think about when talking about the past. But they at the same time cast themselves the two, the two individuals in the show as uh, the word I used in my uh, in my review was buffoons. They they were really just a couple of caricatures and um, really right from the get go in the show. Uh, we're attempting to, uh, I think, make a splash by simply being um, really weird and willing to do all kinds of, of crazy sort of stunt kind of things in association with this pastime of metal detecting. Uh, they had their own lingo they came up with. They like to talk about juice and nectar and roundness, all being terms for buried treasure that they uh, they excitedly dug up. Uh, the The interesting thing was, uh, I didn't think that their discovery rush translated at all uh, via the television. I don't think that, uh, as, as someone who has had the opportunity to find something ancient and and, and really, you know, have that uh, sort of rush, it didn't translate very well. So uh, that may be one reason that the show didn't catch a lot of attention, if that's the case. Uh, but the, the but the really goofy part of the show was that they kept making silly bets during the the whole programming where they would uh, most of it was involving who would come up with the oldest item or uh, who could generate the most dollar value by their fines over the course of the show and then the the loser had to do some kind of dumb stunt uh, like licking a jellyfish that had washed up on the beach uh, which was clearly just reality TV goofiness you know so so it was a real caricature type of uh, presentation. Um, at the end, I was sick and tired of it, and I didn't want to watch the second episode, but I did just for the sake of completeness. The same thing, um, except that they switched from um, Montana, where they were digging up things from the uh, mostly post-Civil War, uh, to some colonial sites and a War of 1812 site. And for me, that struck a little closer to home because I've been working very hard here in Iowa to protect the only War of 1812 battlefield that we have that's uh, extant, and um, it's in a precarious sort of uh, private landowner situation who wants to develop. So that one hit a little more home when they came up with uh, some of those kind of materials. But but still, it was the same kind of um, uh, of goofiness and uh, really nothing about recording any kind of contextual information or even of being of concern. Uh, so um, it's it's a show about making money, uh, and that's really the bottom line. John, let me cut you off for a minute sure. here. We're going to have to run to break, but when we get back, we will continue to the discussion, and uh, we will be back after these words. Uh, stay tuned. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Professionals and families who are dealing with autism face challenges that can lead to many questions. Questions about how to understand, communicate, and support each other. Every week, Autism Today with host Dr. Patrick J. Rydell will focus on dealing with the diagnosis and the day-to-day challenges of autism spectrum disorders. Dr. Rydell will combine his 30 years of experience along with featured guests from the ASD field to provide their insights and answers to your questions. Listen every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. 
Want to hear about what's going on in the world of fashion, beauty, gossip, and politics? Then you'll want to tune in every Wednesday to the Voice America Variety Channel. Face Forward with entrepreneur and beauty consultant Sarah McNamara is honest talk, great guests, and a cool vibe with a lot of fun. Sarah and her guy Friday, Anthony, will turn you on to what's hot and what's not. This is a radio show custom made for you. Tune in to Face Forward, Wednesdays at 2 p.m. in the East, 11 a.m. in the West on Voice America Variety. Come back to your senses. Imagine a radio show that will help you recover your common sense. Host Leah Brenda Smith is a health and wellness specialist who will explain techniques designed to help you recover from the stress of your life. It's all about how you respond to your thoughts. A little bit of self-awareness can go a long way in helping you to relax and enjoy your life. Tune in to Come Back to Your Senses Radio, live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra geoarc.com. Now, back to the program. We're back on our program. We've been discussing the airing of a couple of television shows that overlap with archaeological interests, but they stress sort of a commercial treasure hunting perspective on digging, and they're basically uh, adventurers going out to uh, generally, from what I've gathered, private locations and uh, digging up the dirt where they have some prior information to suggest that there is something of value, specifically of value in these archaeological settings, and these individuals are looking for the information frantically. They're digging, uh, not necessarily paying very close attention to what we archaeologists typically call context or the location and the specific location where these artifacts are found, and they're simply looking for the good stuff and are uh, trying to sell it. So John uh, Dorshuk, who had seen these two shows, one by National Geographic, one by Spike TV, was summarizing the results of this. And John, why don't you just sort of wrap it up and tell us where you think these shows are going and how you see their uh, their ostensible objectives of the people who are doing this kind of excavation and treasure hunting. Sure. Uh, the uh, the American Digger show has not yet premiered. That's going to be, uh, I think, in about two weeks. So there is Internet advertising going on for that that, that, that people can find pretty easily on the Spike TV um, website. But but it is it is to be aired. So what I saw was the Diggers program, the two episodes of the Diggers program, which are back-to-back half hours on the National Geo uh, channel. So I, I guess to, to, to sort of wrap it up, I'm very pleased that, in fact, they, they didn't try to legitimate it as some sort of archaeology. Um, uh, but at the same time, I'm um, concerned about the, the basic message, which really strongly came through, which was that anybody should feel free to go out and just dig up this stuff and then take it to the local pawn shop and see what you can get for it. And that's how we should appreciate our past and value our past. And, and to me, I, I think there's much more to it than that, and it's unfortunate that that's the message that's getting pushed out. 
Tom, as as an individual who was instrumental in formulating the law and who's a recognized expert in the Section 106 process and the formal institution of archaeological procedures in, in public sectors, uh, can you give us a little bit of your perspective on this, what your thoughts are about the shows and, and the message that they're trying to convey and what's either negative or positive about that? Yeah, sure. Well, understand that <clears throat> I really have not been particularly involved in the promotion of archaeological laws, which um, I think, on the whole, are are not very helpful. Uh, the and my primary association with this particular set of shows is that when <clears throat> the professional archaeological community began to get up in arms and drag out the pitchforks and start lighting the firebrands, I uh, objected. Because to me, the reaction from the archaeological community makes archaeologists look like a bunch of narrow-minded, self-righteous, elitist dogs in the manger. And I don't think that that's the kind of message that we ought to be conveying to the general public. I think it repels people who ought to be our allies, and at the same time it distracts us from dealing with the really major sources of site destruction in this country and around the world, things like land development, like destructive other forms of land use, and uh, effects of natural phenomena like climate change. While we're beating our breasts and tearing our hair about these terrible, terrible metal detectorists, um, vastly more archaeological sites are being destroyed by other forces. And uh, we need all the help we can get dealing with them. We ought not to be turning people off by acting like dogs in the manger. Uh, finally, what strikes me as interesting is that a lot of the people who are making the most noise about these shows are exactly the same contract archaeologists who very happily assist their clients in getting through the regulatory process as cheaply and as quickly as they can so that they can go out and destroy sites, not only archaeological sites, but most particularly places that are of cultural importance to indigenous communities and other communities. And I think that's a kind of interesting um, comment on the whole thing. So I, frankly, am not uh, um, particularly sympathetic with the position of the various archaeological societies in, in this uh, conflict. Well, I have to say that, uh, John, I'd like to get your reaction to this immediately after I, I just throw this in. I have to say that, that the reaction of the archaeological community when this came out was somewhat anticipated. I mean, what happened was there was a rush to go to petitions and to write people uh, who are the head of the various organizations, which we all know basically address a very limited population, prof other professionals, and the professionals were going to write letters to the heads of their various organizations, and there was going to be a little firestorm, a little uprising, uh, possibly getting uh, some kind of a more public airing of this, but not very much. And I think basically my own perspective that was that it's just a hair too self-serving, and, and, and that we're really 
really sort of circulating this uh, lack of satisfaction and this outrage amongst ourselves where the real message should be to communicate this kind of information to the public itself. John, what's your position on that? Well, I, I would agree with you. In fact, I'm, I'm fascinated by the, uh, the attempts by um, academics. I'll, I'll use it very broadly, not just archaeologists or anthropologists, but, but all academics to figure out this social medium business. And, Joe, you're on the cutting edge here. You've got an Internet radio show, so you know, you know, you're getting to far more public than most of us ever get to talk to. Uh, but there, there was a lot of discussion that I saw on various listservs uh, among the, the, the archaeologists responding to these uh, the, the meaning of these shows and, and all about, you know, shouldn't we try to get on Facebook? Shouldn't we try to use Twitter somehow? How can we reach people? How can, how can this work? And then there was the immediate counter-reaction by those who said, oh, but that's exactly what the producers want. They're, they're, they're going to love any kind of publicity is good. It doesn't matter if it's negative or positive. So, you know, I, I think a fairly routine set of debates about the whole pros and cons of trying to react at all came about but but i'm gonna I, i'm gonna agree with tom that uh there's there's definitely a large cadre of uh consultants out there um and i'm gonna uh you know throw the throw the uh the attention on those particularly in the uh, in private sector consulting who are in archaeology as a as a field of of making money as a business and uh uh, I don't know how vocal those folks have actually been. Some of those are leaders in some of these national organizations, but uh, but many are not. Uh, and uh, I think there are there are folks, and I'm going to count myself among those who have been charged by the by the mission of their organization uh, and state law and those other considerations that uh, I'm supposed to work to preserve and protect things. And uh, uh, yes, I do have staff who are externally funded by contracts, but. Uh, I urge the stand, uh, highest standards on them in terms of doing their work in ter- as good science and documenting things. And that's the biggest difference that I saw was that uh, these these guys who were out there with these metal detectors simply had no concern or even uh, necessarily a recognition that there was such a thing as context to these things. Everything was piecemeal, individual fine, and yet they had knowledge about these things. They knew a uh, War of 1812 button from a Civil War button, for example, which means that at some point in their life and, and in their learning process, they had discovered the difference between those two eras and military activities and what to look for. So, so they, they knew that background information increased the value of these finds, but at the same time they were not contributing back by recording any kind of information. And I think that's where... We really want to encourage the public and, and get them on our side, as Tom said, because we need help with uh, keeping track of this stuff and learning about it. Well, let me suggest. Um, yeah, go ahead, Tom, please. Uh, Joe, I just wanted to suggest that you bring Ray in at this point because Ray's research in Austria is absolutely germane to this topic, and um, I think it would be very interesting to get his perspectives. And that's exactly where I was going with this. Ray, you're coming from uh, Western Europe where I think we, uh, those of us who have, have experienced uh, archaeology and heritage management on a global perspective are generally agreed that the heritage consciousness is much stronger in many parts of Europe than it is in the United States. The programs are largely governed by state laws and the separation, say, between public and private property is not as big an issue in most of Europe as it is here. 
there. Uh, can you give us a little bit of information on uh, how you see heritage management playing out and what your response would be to this type of, of pursuit where people simply go out and, and, and dig archaeological sites to, to, to make money? Well, uh, I mean, it, it's very difficult to give an overview of, of Europe as such because, as, as you are well aware, um, there are many different national laws in Europe. Um, of course. What, what one can say is that most European laws um, are relatively restrictive on that practice, um, more or less prohibiting it completely or next to completely with only a few exceptions. Um, and basically metal detecting in many countries in Europe is effectively outlawed or, well, put in a position legally by, by national laws that effectively, well, you can't metal detect without getting into trouble except under very specific circumstances. Um, the, the real problem, however, is the policing of these laws. I mean, it, it may be very well, and I mean, the Austrian case that Tom was referring to that I, I recently published on um, is a case in point. There is a law that basically says you can't metal detect, yet everybody does. And the main effect <laughs> that the law has, I mean, not, not everybody, of course, but I mean, a, a significant amount of people does. Um, they, are, they are organized via the Internet. They have their fora. They, they are reasonably well known. Um, and there's, there's hardly any way of policing that law. Now, those people go out, and many of them go out for historical interest rather than to make money of this, um, while others, of course, go out to make money um, as well as having a historical interest or, I mean, just go out to make money. Um, so there's a broad range of different motivations, and, I mean, at least those that are historically interested can be sort of used for at least providing some information on what they find, um, and that in countries that have very prohibitive regulations, um, well, simply doesn't happen. I mean, the Austrian case is a case in point. The law was tightened over the, over the past roughly 20 years. Before the law was tightened, there was a reasonable number of reports of metal detected fines. Since then, it has collapsed to virtually zero. The stuff is still dug up, but nobody gets to know. We're gonna we're gonna stop for a break at this point. We will be back, and Ray, when we get back, I'd like you to talk a little bit more about the the perspective that you bring into the picture from uh, from both Austria and the UK. We'll be back after these words. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Each week, Jimmy Gould brings you the stories and the people that you want to hear about. Tune in to A Current Life to hear about the journey to success, how our guests became the people they are today, and the highs and lows they experienced along the way. Each hour will leave you inspired and entertained as Jimmy gets up close and personal with every week's guest and shares ideas you can identify with and apply to your own life. A Current Life with Jimmy Gould airs Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Michelle Core's Six Degrees is your connected consciousness. Six Degrees is what comes around, goes around radio. Committed to delivering a fresh perspective on thought-provoking, investigative information that can change your life. Six Degrees connects you to the social and emotional scene and is your trusted advisor from finance to romance, mainstream to metaphysical. It's a positive, upbeat look at life, love, and the pursuit of passion. Get connected Saturdays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. Welcome back. Uh, we are discussing... Uh, interesting aspect of archaeology that was brought to bear recently with the airing of a couple of television programs um, concerning looting and the pursuit of treasure in archaeological sites by various individuals who are looking for nothing more than to uh, sort of indulge themselves in the joy of discovery, but probably more more significantly in trying to enrich themselves by selling rare finds from various sites uh, across the United States. And we're in the middle of discussing the European perspective, specifically one that is brought to bear by Ray Carl, who's a professor of archaeology and heritage at Bangor University in Wales and has worked extensively in the UK and in his native Austria. Uh, Ray, could you Come back and, and give us again a little bit of a perspective on your work and what you see as sort of an increasing relationship, possibly a better relationship between the metal detector people and the amateur community, if you will, and uh, governments and universities in Austria and the UK with respect to excavation and, and archaeology generally. Yes, certainly. Um, I mean, I, I said before the break that, I mean, in Austria, due to the law, um, reporting figures, for instance, had dropped dramatically by over 75%. Now, the, the, I mean, the may, one of the big parts of the UK, England and Wales, uh, has a very different system of approaching that. Um, when you say reporting, when you say reporting, what do you mean exactly? Well, reporting basically means giving some information about what was found to some authority um, I see. Okay. Or, or some some repository that collects that information, some archive, um, some central information hub um, in one form or the other. Um, so in, in Austria, that is the National Heritage Agency for the country. Um, 
in in England and Wales, the situation is, however, quite different. Um, uh, there, there is a voluntary scheme for reporting. So it's not compulsory. I mean, some fines have to be reported uh, compulsorily because uh, they are classified as treasure under uh, the Treasure Act, which is a specific piece of, of British legislation. Um, and, but that's only about 2% of all fines that metal detectorists make. Um, so about 98% of fines do not need to be reported by law, but um, there is a voluntary scheme that encourages uh, people to report. Um, that's called the Portable Antiquity Scheme. It's mainly run by, by the British Museum in, in uh, England and by uh, the, the National Museum of Wales in Wales. Um, and basically, that pulls the information that comes in voluntarily into an Internet database. Now, that scheme was introduced... Well, about, well, 15, pretty much 15 years ago. Um, and I mean, in England and Wales, the, the number of fines reported has exploded by about 40 times. Um, now, reported fines, of course, don't necessarily mean that there's a lot of information on context, but at least it is known what is found. Of course, not everyone reports because it's voluntary, but, I mean, in the compulsory systems that are dominant in much of the rest of Europe, nobody reports at all, or very, very few people report only. While, I mean, in England and Wales, the reporting numbers have gone up dramatically. And the so reasons, that, for, reasons for that would be, according to well, you? Well, there is a, a, a public outreach program with archaeology going out to metal detector clubs, to the public more generally um, to, well, basically pick up the people where they are rather than to preach to them from some elevated academic position uh, about the evils of, of their doing. But rather they go there, they try to engage with them, they try to get information from the public, and that has the effect that over the past 15 years when this system has been built up, the number of reports has almost on an annual basis increased. More and more information is reported. Information reporting is also getting more and more accurate as, can, as far as can be determined. So archaeology and, I mean, the, the heritage bodies that collect that information do get more information about what archaeology is affected and how it's being affected. Uh, John, let me swing you into this discussion. Uh, my impression has always been that heritage consciousness is probably stronger in Europe than it is in the United States. So based on, on that presumption, which may be fallacious completely, but let me ask you if, if, if uh, the type of program that Ray is discussing uh, were extended into, let's say, the American Midwest, where you're familiar, do you think we would get this same kind of response from people? Is, is there that kind of a, a cooperative uh, mentality that you would suggest um, between, say, government agencies and and collectors? I mean, would we would would this voluntary type of institution work? I think so, and in fact, it's already in place to a degree. We have uh, here in Iowa a, a group called the Iowa Archaeological Society, which is a predominantly uh, avocational or non-professional group. But uh, I think uh, wisely, uh, when the Association of Iowa Archaeologists was formed uh, 30-some years ago, uh, that's the professional association, 
one of the bylaws was that you also have to belong to the Iowa Archaeological Society, the the, the non-professional. So it uh, forces contact, in a sense, between professionals and non-professionals. And uh, I don't think that's true of every state. I think there's a lot of places where the professional councils or professional archaeological groups don't uh, uh, require of themselves to have much contact with uh, with with avocationals. Uh, but uh, it, we, we, one of the functions of my office is to maintain the Iowa site file. It's a record of all, all recorded archaeological sites. And uh, we spend a lot of our public engagement time, and I'm glad that uh, Ray used the word engagement. That's certainly a buzzword around here anymore. That is not outreach. You're not going out to tell people what you know. You want to go out and find out what they know, and it's a, it needs to be a two-way conversation. So we've been pushing that message hard, and uh, we are seeing payoffs on that. So uh, but what we've also seen is that there's sort of a stratification of activities. There's those who choose to belong to the Iowa Archaeological Society, which is a, uh, it's okay to collect off surface, but we don't dig into archaeological sites sort of crowd. And then those folks who belong to another outfit, uh, uh, which is, uh, has very little contact with professionals, um, that uh, is into finding things wherever and however, uh, including using mechanical equipment in some instances that we've become aware of, much more destructive. Um, so we are reaching some of those folks, but um, the ones who are doing the reporting are those that uh, uh, understand more about uh, archaeological concerns as opposed to just an interest in, in treasure uh, uh, and, um, and finding things uh, without recording any kind of context. I, I think you you put your finger right on it when when you're trying to actually break this down into heritage, uh, not heritage, excuse me, outreach versus interaction, where uh, you know there there is no, as you had said, you know, stratification in this situation where there's a mutuality here rather than an imposition from above. Tom, your perspective on this: Are we seeing any progress in terms of getting uh, the citizenry more aware of heritage? and the need for management of resources, irrespective of what the contractor perspective is on this? Oh, I think we've probably gone backwards. Uh, I think it's, uh, it's interesting that 30, 40 years ago, particularly in the Midwest, you had archaeological societies like the Iowa Archaeological Society were extremely active with the professional community in promoting legislation to protect property, to protect historic places to protect archaeological sites, and, and so on. The Arkansas is the classic example uh-huh. uh, mm-hmm. where uh, the Arkansas Archaeological Society was absolutely instrumental in getting the state to set up a statewide archaeological survey to fund protection of sites, to fund a statewide archaeological program, and the relationship between the professionals and the avocationals has been the key to that state's success in archaeology ever since. Uh, And I don't see that happening very much anymore. The the distinction, the uh, division seems to be much more stark uh, now than than it used to be. I could be wrong. I don't have any, any hard data. Uh, one of the things I really liked about Ray's paper was that he actually had hard data on this kind of thing, and not only statistical data, but also ethnographic data by going out and interviewing collectors, talking to metal detectorists, and so on, being able to bring their perspectives to bear on on the whole matter. Um, 
so I think in this country it's gotten, if anything, worse in the last um, few years. And why is that? Uh, I think that we've had a general breakdown in the cohesion of uh, sort of the interested community. Um, we've had the infusion of an awful lot of money, contract money, and a lot of us are very focused on working for a living, doing archaeology. Uh, that's generally mm, sort of divorced us from the academic community, and both of us have gotten divorced from from the um, the avocationals. I, I, if I could jump in, I think Tom's right. Uh, one thing that I've noticed that's very different now than say 20 years ago was it's very hard to get volunteers onto a uh, contracted excavation uh, where there's a uh, particularly when it's a private company uh, say a gas pipeline company that has a right-of-way that they're trying to get an archaeological site mitigated on they are so liability conscious and risk management conscious that they will not allow uh, anybody to step onto their project area while these kinds of uh, works are in progress whereas you know 20 years or more ago Tom's right. You know, you could put out a call for volunteers, and you'd get interested public coming, and uh, it added value because of their labor, obviously. But uh, many of those people knew a lot too, and contributed in that sense to uh, both the excavation and the interpretation of what was being dug. But the whole uh, uh, compliance system that has built up over the last twenty years, in particular, is, is makes that more and more difficult to to involve the public. So it's the surge in contract work that has resulted to some degree in this breakdown in cooperation? I think it contributes to it. Um, I also think that uh, uh, we have to keep in mind uh, that many of the avocational societies uh, are aging as well. Uh, at least that's true in Iowa. And uh, folks who help start these things uh, may still be members, but they're not near as uh, nimble in the ways of uh, the Internet or in getting around, and uh, that has certainly slowed them, at least in, uh, in my neighborhood. Ray, let me get back to you for a minute here on this, because um, in much of the world, uh, departments of antiquities and heritage authorities are very, very involved in bridging the gap uh, between uh, collectors and, and the professional community. How is the interaction, say, in the UK and Austria, and, and use any other European countries as you will, um, what is the relationship, say, between the university and the antiquities authorities and the general public in, insofar as trying to promote a conservation ethic and consciousness? How does that work? Well, I mean, it, again, it's very, very variable from country to country. No there question. Are, no question. There, there are some where the links are relatively tight between, for instance, heritage agencies and the university sector, but there is a, a large disconnect between that part, so the professional archaeology part, um, and the public. There are other countries where the the links are very good throughout. There are some where there is uh, some some disconnect within the archaeological community with with some parts, particularly museum sector and and uh, that part of of uh, sort of the archaeological sector, the curational side, having a lot of of engagement with the public. But the university sector, for instance, largely disjointed from from that group. Um, so it it varies very much, but there are 
various things going on in some parts of Europe where there is an increased drive towards getting those things together um, more consistently again. So, I mean, something that has become very popular in the UK recently in, in, in the last couple of years is uh, pushing for public or community archaeology, um, as it's called, where um, there is a, a strategic drive to engage wider segments of the community into archaeological work um, as volunteers with various possibilities, citizen science projects. Um, we at, at, at Bangor are actually with our local uh, unit. I mean, there's, there's a uh, archaeological contractor as well in, in the town. And with that unit, we are currently working on several, developing several citizen archaeology projects where, I mean, that is using the internet, for instance, with using Google uh, Earth pictures and using LiDAR data that we provide from, from the archaeological site to find sites without actually having to go out and dig them up in the first place. So there are various ways in, in how this is done. But, I mean, generally speaking, I mean, the, the higher the engagement, uh, the more investment is put into engaging the wider community, usually the better the results for archaeology are. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the role of English heritage in the system in the UK? Because English heritage has a much higher profile for what's going on in, in, in terms of the infrastructure, archaeological infrastructure in the UK, than anything that we have in the US. Why don't you uh, uh, make the audience here a little bit aware of, of, of how English heritage functions within the uh, compliance scheme in the UK? Well, I mean, in English Heritage in England and various other bodies in, in other parts of the United Kingdom. So in Wales, it's Cadu. In, in Scotland, it's Historic Scotland. Um, uh, are involved mainly, I mean, partially in funding various projects as well. But, I mean, they are mainly uh, regulating the scheduling of monuments, the listing of building, um, and providing scheduled monument consent and listed building consent, as well as doing a hell of a lot of other things, like, I mean, collecting national databases of, of sites and, and monuments and, and these things. They are partially still part of the civil service. So in Wales, for instance, Cadu is still part of the civil service, while English Heritage is a Quongo, um, so it's has been removed from civil service status. Um, mm -hmm. But effectively, they are fulfilling the, the central regulator role for their respective jurisdictions. So English Heritage for England is effectively responsible for the main policy development, for the um, execution of the main policies, um, for much of the policing as well. Um, so it's doing quite a lot. Funnily enough, the Portable Antiquity Scheme, while, I mean, it is, of course, collaborating with English Heritage, is separate, in a sense, from English Heritage in that it is run through the British Museum um, rather than through English Heritage. But you have sort of an, a network of organizations that seem to function quite well together in terms of raising public awareness, in terms of, of bringing the need for education to the forefront. Uh, we Do we have anything like that here that's, that's beyond the state system? Uh, Tom, why don't you comment a little bit on, on that, that disconnect, if you will, and how we might be able to solve these problems going forward? Well, the simple answer is no. We, we have no, no uh, similar such thing. Uh, the main um, 
uh, uh, coordination, if you will, of, of archaeological stuff in the United States is theoretically done by the National Park Service, but the National Park Service, very understandably, is mostly concerned with the national parks. And right. um, so there really has not, for many years, been um, any sort of initiative to develop um, a, a, any kind of comprehensive archaeological program in the United States. And do we see any baseline? Do we see any kind of an umbrella type of operation on federal, on, on, in the federal context or in under a federal umbrella that would enable us to, to work that out? Or is it just something that by nature of who we are as a people and, and how the government is structured that we really can't get something like this done? Oh, we could do it, but we just haven't. Okay. So you think that there's a possibility for doing that? Uh, no, because I don't think that uh, there's a great deal of interest in uh, anything like that. At the federal level. At the federal level, yeah, at the federal yeah. level. That's what I, I'm I agree. About. I, I don't see it at the federal level. I think uh, individual states have had some successes, and, and we're, we're fighting hard here, so we'll see what we can do. No, I, I agree with that, and, and if you look at it, I mean, Tom's right. If you look at the way the states are structured, some of the programs are incredibly well designed. I mean, the Arkansas example is one that's persisted uh, for years. Your program in Iowa is very good. South Carolina has been very good for a really long time. Um, you would think that you know I'm, that some of these programs would be in better shape in the blue states. It turns out not necessarily. Um, and I don't know why that is, uh, Tom. Maybe you have an answer on that one, but I, I certainly don't know. Um, Tom? Uh, Hello. No, I don't. I don't have an a an answer. I just don't think that. Um, they, they, look, I've. There is no leadership in archaeology in the United States, um, in in government archaeology. Uh, so without leadership, uh, nothing's going to happen. I tend to agree. Um, I think we certainly can look to uh, to other countries for a little bit of guidance, and um, I think that education clearly is the major vehicle for uh, may maybe at least moving in some kind of a direction towards rectifying this situation. Uh, John, you've been involved in this for a really long time, and uh, have you do you feel that in Iowa things have changed significantly? And, and that we're moving towards towards some sort of a comprehensive awareness that brings brings this mentality out to the public. Uh, I think we're moving in that direction, uh, but we have a long ways to go. It's it's really an uphill battle. Um, we've we've made positive impacts, and we can measure those, and we can you know we can track those, but we're still reaching a really fractional part of the population compared to getting a big message out. And if I can bring this back around, that's why I think a show like Diggers which had an opportunity, I mean, National Geographic had an opportunity to use airtime to push a message that would have been helpful, but they chose, I think, a message that really makes a mockery out of metal detecting as much as it does anything else. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they got pushback that we haven't heard about necessarily from the metal detectors, because it makes them look like a bunch of clowns. So if if folks like National Geographic would get on board who have a national punch and can really reach a lot of people 
and they talk to the right archaeologists, we might we might make some headway. I think you're probably right, and uh, I think that's unfortunate. I think it really is unfortunate that an organization with that kind of profile, basically at the at sort of a flagship agency, presumably for education and the promotion of a, uh, a preservation ethic, if you will, uh, almost should feel sort of a responsibility for moving this in the positive direction. I, uh, I want to thank our guests for being involved in this program. I think it's an important one, and I'm looking forward to hearing from Spike TV. And if they do respond to us, we may have a follow-up program next week on the uh, on their television series and, and where they think it's going and where we might be able to generate some positive discussion amongst uh, responsible people in the archaeological community and the public. And I think education is obviously a, a critical component of this venture. Thank you very much to Ray Carl from jo- for joining us from the UK. Uh, thanks to John Dorschuk from the State Historic Preservation in Iowa. And as usual, thanks, Tom, for your input on this. And uh, we will see you again next time, possibly on another topic and possibly on the same topic uh, if we get the consent from Spike TV and a positive feedback. So thank you very much, and we will see you next time. Good evening. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.